Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. From I'm Jenny. I'm Jen. I'm Natalie. And we are the Art History Babes. Oh, we're back. <laughs> we're here. We're doing it. It's actually been a long time since we've recorded. It yeah. has it's been. It's been a long time since it was the four of us, it feels yeah. like. Yes. Yeah. Also that. Also truth. We're just traveling babes and <laughs> dreaming we're really about not traveling. traveling. Yeah. <laughs> I, we're not traveling like far. Physically. Yeah. <laughs> In our minds. <laughs> just around California. <laughs> Some exciting news is we talked about this in the Impressionism episode. We put this out into the universe <laughs> yeah. that we would really like it if people sent us wine. And we you know what? Wish. If you put that out there and it just happens. <laughs> you guys are angel babies. You really are. So we are tonight, we're sipping on some delicious wines from a yep. couple of different babes. Yes. Ginny, um, mm. would you like to talk about? Yes, I would. So we got um, three different bottles of some delicious wine from our friend Renee who wrote to us. And uh, the wine label is called Bruto Co. Um, it's B-R-U-T-O-C-A-O. Sellers, check them out. And the one that we're drinking tonight is Sangiovese. And it's delightful. Mm. It's rich. It's delicious. Thank you again, Renee. Renee also wrote to us to tell us that she is starting a um, kind of art retreat and workshop website, and it's beachhouseretreats.net, where you can go to a beach house in Corona Del Mar and do art, and Whoa. it sounds pretty dope. Well, so can check we that, that out as well. Yeah, she wants us to She wants us to. So it's probably going to happen. Once, I want to go. <laughs> once we're out of this hell called grad school. Yeah. So Renee, thank you again. Check Thanks, out. Renee. Thank Renee. you, baby. Thank you, Renee. Um, also, we got a... Uh, Lovely bottle of wine from Nasty Woman Wines. Um, oh yes, yes. Um, okay. New new wine label that recently hit the scene. Um, the story behind it is is kind of cute and moving. So Nasty Woman Wines was founded on Election Day 2016 by Meg Murray with the hopes of celebrating the first female president. Like many around the world, she was stunned by the ultimate outcome of the election. 
with Megan tears, her five-year-old daughter patted her back, wiped away her tears, and asked, how old do I have to be when I run for president? Aww. It was then that Meg's disappointment turned to resolve. Her daughter did not ask if she could run, but when. From from what Meg's told me about the brand is, yeah, it was supposed to be like a celebratory thing, and then and then things went a different way, and then it kind of became more important that she go through with this this wine brand. Um, tonight we are drinking Pantsuit Pinot Noir. Um, Pinot. They've also got they've also got Pave the Way Chardonnay. Oh, I know that's got a nice ring to I it. I love a good title. I, I mean, clearly we appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. And also, fun thing, they donate 20% of their net profits to help get more women to the table. So one of the um, the recipients is the Women in Public Service Pro- Project, which is a nonpartisan program um, supporting global women's leadership, basically. So really, just like an all-around good company, you should check it out, www.com nastywomenwines.com so thank you Meg for sending us that delicious bottle of wine yeah thank you Meg that's so cool that she did this really positive thing after um, such a devastating night Um, I wish I would have done something half as productive (laughs) the night of the election (laughs) oh man that was rough rough night it was a rough night um also quick shout out to our friends the art bros um if if you're not familiar with them they are a series on youtube kind of like podcast-esque and they're a couple of really cool guys that just like to talk about art um we recently did a collabo with them and nat and i were on one episode and then Ginny and jen were on another episode that was fun it was fun yeah The episode that Nat and I did about Agnes Martin is already out, and I'm sure Jen and Jenny's will be out very soon. So check them out on YouTube. They've got lots of episodes, like 80 episodes Mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, they've been been doing it. They've been doing it. For a while. Yeah, Yeah. and they're really, really cool guys. So check it out. Check out Art Bros. Art Bros. Art Bros. Oh, I feel like that would have been such a great time for me to use the ham horn, but I think I deleted (laughs) that app. Oh, Oh, no. We I'll, got I'll get it we back. got rid of the ham horn. Did you delete it to make room for gardenscapes? You know I probably did. <laughs> gardenscapes is is Ginny and I's new s- favorite game. I've heard you talking about it a lot, and I have to say I'm intrigued. And mostly probably because I have so much to do right now that I need to find things that don't matter to do. Yeah, it's a really nice little balance when I'm feeling stressed out. Like you just you you play this little game where you gotta like line up fruit, and then you like. You get coins. And I'm then, downloading it right now. <laughs> and then you get yeah. you get to create a beautiful garden. Garden space, please sponsor us. Gardenscape. Yeah. Scape. <laughs> Gardenscape. Hamhorn. <laughs> Spon- sponsor us, Hamhorn. <laughs> <laughs> and here's for the art bros. Art bros. Art bros. <laughs> um, also, we're going to have an Easter episode coming out real soon about Fabergé eggs. It's going to be really intriguing, you guys. If you don't know, then you will know. We're gonna have we're gonna it. have a, a genuine Russian on the <laughs> real life. A real Russian, Russian is gonna be talking about Fabergé eggs. Yeah, we do. Cool. We know Russian, and she's coming on the show. It's gonna be um, so great. Um, but yeah, Fabergé eggs gonna be dope. That'll be coming out in like another week. But tonight we are talking about ancient Greek monsters. Ooh. Monsters. 
Whoa, <laughs> that was cool. Did you guys practice that? <laughs> no, we didn't. And you guys let us onto your brain. Corey and I have mind brain melded wave? before. It's more often over like a group text message, but it's Oh, yeah. And then we a... dressed alike that day. Yeah, I don't know. True. It's happening a oh, lot. Oh, my God. Yeah. Synchronized babes. We all spend a lot of time together, so. This mm-hmm. is true. I feel like we picked up each other's little idiosyncrasies. Oh, yeah, definitely. Probably. Like, sometimes Ginny and I will walk into our collective <laughs> office in um, the building in which our program is in and um, we'll just both start making like ridiculous sounds and we'll just be like ah, ah, and we just know what we're saying like we know yeah. what that means no words and, needed. and everyone else knows what that means and I'm just really happy that I have a friend that I can make weird noises with who understands yep what more do you need in know. <laughs> so Monsters. Monsters. Ancient Greek monsters. Specifically. I, sometimes I, sometimes referred to as composite figures, but yes. monsters is way cooler. Yeah. Um, so when talking about monsters in ancient Greece, like especially as it pertains to art, a lot of this is from mythology. So if you know even a little bit about ancient Greece, you know that mythology was a huge part of their culture and reasonably that impacted a lot of art. So a lot of the art that you look at from ancient Greece often depicts mythological scenes. So in talking about monsters in ancient Greek mythology, in ancient Greek art, what I'm going to talk about are just some of the functions that monsters served. And I'll cross over a little bit more into just kind of monster theory as a whole. We read this really interesting uh, paper, or it's from a book called Monster Theory by Jeffrey Jerome Cohen. I have it. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. If you're at all intrigued by monster theory, not just specifically related to ancient Greek monsters, but like uh, he talks about Frankenstein and Dracula. So there's a lot of like film discussion and literature outside of just the kind of ancient Greek context. It's really interesting stuff. So when we're talking about the some of the initial functions that monsters serve. So why are we so fascinated with monsters? Why are they so present in many different cultures and mythologies. Um, First and foremost, they can serve as kind of a moral warning. So monsters can demonstrate a way not to behave. Um, Likewise, they can also be visually representative of kind of an inner corruptness or evil. So an ancient Greek monster example of this is the Lycoon. And Lycoon is kind of like the first werewolf. So the Lycoon was actually a king of Arcadia, according to Greek mythology. And Zeus, you know, the father of the gods in ancient Greece, was staying at the king of Arcadia's home. And he was an asshole to Zeus (laughs) and tried feeding him the meat of his son to see if Zeus is really all-powerful and all-knowing. Now, who does that? A dick. Come on. Yeah. And so Zeus was like oh, no, no, and turned him into half wolf, half man. So in this example, we really see a monster that is turned into a monster because of already monstrous qualities. And when I say monstrous qualities, I I just mean in that case, like being evil, being cruel. So it's a direct reflection result of his actions. And so outer monstrosity is created because of inner monstrosity in this example. But there are many. 
So when we're looking at ancient Greek monsters in particular, like Corey said, we can also call them like composite creatures. And so what this means, composite more often than not in ancient Greek mythology and art, they're creatures that are have human parts mixed with animal parts. So sometimes it's half and half, like you can get the centaur, which is half horse, half man. You can get the minotaur, and the minotaur was born from the result of a bull mating with a king's wife, and this creates a half bull, half man. Yeah, real, <laughs> real scandalous. When we're looking at these composite creatures, like what, what is some of the purpose of that? So we can look at it on one hand as these composite creatures represent qualities of strength that are beyond human abilities. So when you have the Minotaur, he has the strength of a bull that goes beyond the strength that a man can possess, but he still has part man in him. Um, that sounded weird. There's a man up there. There's a man in there. Um, so when we're talking about the Minotaur in, in particular, what truly seems to make the Minotaur um, monstrous in the ancient Greek context is that his animal nature is more dominant. And that's what we see a lot with these ancient Greek monsters that do have human parts that are half human, but it's that animal nature that seems to take over more and that is what makes them a monster. And so monsters can also represent otherness. Another term that uh, we throw around a lot and you might hear is alterity. So monsters can represent anything from um, someone who is kind of living outside of Greek society. One thing about ancient Greek society was that it was very structured and there were very specific societal roles that people had to fulfill. So if you were outside of that, whether you, they really valued like beauty and youth. So if you were an ugly old hag, you were like, whoa, outside of society. So monsters are kind of an exaggerated way of representing someone who is other, someone who is beyond kind of the norm. They can also serve to represent someone who is foreign, so non-Greek. And the sense of the other can be applied to those, um, a lot of different instances from um, Greek mythology and Greek writing. There's one example of Homer's Polyphemus, and Polyphemus is a cyclops. And in this case, he represents what lies beyond socially constructed borders. So when we're talking about ancient Greece in particular, a lot of the cities there were very centered around the city center or the polis. So once you left kind of this city center, it was considered like, ooh, you were kind of out in the wild. So when you read Greek mythology, when characters encounter monsters, when characters can turn into monsters, oftentimes it is because they are away from the city center. They're out in kind of the uncharted unknown and that's where you can often encounter monsters. And so these monsters that live outside of the city are depicted as savage and barbarian oftentimes, living without laws and incapable of creating order. Uh, additionally, monsters can be used as a way of commenting on war. So um, if you've watched like the movie like 300 you see like oh the Greeks were at war with the Persians and the Persians are depicted even in the movie 300 as like these kind of monstrous figures so this is this was also kind of treated in the way in the contemporary ancient Greece where if you look at the story of the Lapiths and the centaurs um, and Jen's going to talk about that more specifically later but like the centaurs like I said half men half horse there's a scene in Greek mythology where they try to rape and abduct these Greek women. And in particular, there's one um, pedimental sculpture 
at the Temple of Zeus in Olympia that was a direct comment on the war with Persia, where it was understood at the time that the centaurs were kind of this metaphorical representation of the Persians. So monsters, these composite creatures in this case, were used as a way of visually representing, commenting on this war with these foreign enemies, the Persians. Kind of the monster as other in ancient Greek mythology and art exhibits both the fear of what is foreign and fear of being outside of or disconnected from Greek society. And by extension, that train of thought leads to monsters being used as a visual as a literary form of control. So monsters can act as markers of borders not to be crossed, whether this is a societal border not to be crossed or an actual geographical border not to be crossed. Like, don't leave the city, especially if you're a young woman and you're unmarried, you might get raped by a centaur, something like that. They warn of the danger in moving outside of society and culturally held standards. To quote Cohen from his monster theory, to step outside of this official geography is to risk attack by some monstrous border patrol, or worse, to become monstrous oneself. And really in their very nature as monsters, they are beyond the norm. They are beyond the norm of ancient Greek society and warn against taking such actions oneself through their monstrosity. So they're just a warning in a lot of ways. And the interesting thing about ancient Greek monsters is that they seem to embody this weird sort of juxtaposition between desire and repulsion. So on one hand, they can embody the fantasy of escape. They can embody this desire to get outside of the city center and seek adventure and see new areas. There is fascination in the bazaar and monsters can really act as Cohen says, difference made flesh. Monsters can represent immortality or human inhuman resilience. Like when we look at the ancient Greek monster, the Hydra, which is a multiple headed like serpentine water monster. If you cut off one of its heads, two would grow back in its place. And when we look at sirens, they represent beauty as well as danger with voices to lure sailors to their deaths. More often than not, it's the monstrous bodies themselves in ancient Greek mythology and art, their deformities, the animal attributes that repulse and frighten us most. So it's difference that frightens um, the most. And when we talk about monsters too, this is the case in certain examples from ancient Greek monster um, kind of mythology and art, but it's also one that we can relate to more contemporary monster theory, like when we look at Frankenstein. So they can act as a scapegoat. So when a monster is defeated, this can be a way of absolving a community of sin. So monsters that plague a specific group or area and are then killed create sort of a clean slate with their death. All wrongdoings are blamed on the monster, so its defeat can be a form of redemption. So these are all qualities that are embodied in a lot of the Greek monsters that we look at. And really, Greek mythology says so much about ancient Greek culture. And like I said, so much of Greek mythology was translated into um, Greek art. That was the majority of the art um, in vase paintings and sculptures. So that's just a little bit of an intro into Greek monsters, monster theory, and kind of the function of monsters in ancient Greek mythology and art. And now to Jen. Aww.
That was that was a great introduction. That was really that good. Was really that good. was, good. That, was, <laughs> that, was that was very good. Yeah. So this whole idea that ancient Greek society used monsters to establish like difference and to establish like ways in which not to act and also using stories of defeating monsters as sort of like metaphors for like a Greek victory over the Persians, for instance. And and yeah. so they're not going to depict the Greeks battling the Persians on, say, like a freeze, but why not use a monster instead? And the thing about these monster stories is that they also served this sort of purpose of uniting the Greek people in the sense that everyone knows like how these stories turn out. So part of being an ancient Greek person is that you are aware of these stories, you hear them all the time. And so it's almost like being part of the club, like when you're looking at these pictures. <laughs> I love like, how you said the club. <laughs> the club, the like, club. you know, we go to the club. We're, no. we're heading up the club. You know, I... no, I mean, like everyone, they know they're all in on the same story. And so in a sense, these stories serve to make these bonds among citizens stronger. Basically like the nature of otherness. There's an in-group and an out-group. Like there's yeah. always an in-group in-group and an out-group and in this scenario monsters represent the out-group yeah yeah and so moving into specific monsters i'm really interested in the centaur for a whole variety of reasons so didn't you read a book called like the centaur smile or something like that (laughs) i don't remember (laughs) no no that's actually it's um is that a thing yeah because i i used it i used it to research my paper too yeah it's it's a actually a really well researched book about ancient greek monsters so background none of us are ancient Mm -mm. um like antiquity people at all and so we all had to take well, except for Natalie didn't have to. But, but, but I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know how you got away with that. But Corey, Ginny, and I had to take a ancient Rome or no ancient Greek seminar to fulfill that ancient Mediterranean requirement to get the masters. And so we took this class and it was really, really interesting because we learned a whole bunch about stuff we did not know about. And the monsters were the most interesting part. The monsters part were the most interesting part. I wrote my paper on ancient Greek prostitutes, which were monsters on their own. And you know what? We're going to have a whole other episode on the monstrous feminine. For sure. Ooh, spooky. Um, (laughs) Back to the centaur, though. Um, The centaur is an amazing composite figure because it is this figure that it's so easily recognizable. So it's almost like. Yes, like you're seeing a creature of fantasy, but it's also not so monstrous as much as it's... I think it treads on that, like, uncanny valley Yeah, because you see fear. centaurs in contemporary culture as, like, they're just characters. They're just, they're, like, mythical figures. Harry but, Potter. Yeah, right. exactly. Right, so they're not necessarily scary. And, I mean, you know, we um, grew up with, like, the old Fantasia movie, not the new one. We talk about okay. Fantasia a I lot. Know. <laughs> but we all remember that scene, right? With, with the babe the, centaurs. With the babe centaurs. And they were all just like super beautiful. And then there's the, the handsome man centaurs that they are like primping themselves for. And, and it's this very idyllic sort of scene. And so we all remember this. 
Um, side note, does anyone remember that really, like, problematic, like, black centaur who was, um... The, from Fantasia? From Fantasia, and there mm-hmm. was, and she was just, like, the maid, and she had, like, oh. it was, like, really messed I, up. I probably wasn't, like, woke enough to understand that that was well, problematic that's, at the time. that's not in the new edits of the Fantasia oh, okay, movie, nice. because Disney was, like, whoa. Yeah, there was, <laughs> like, that's fucked up. Right. Yeah. There was some other scenes, too, where there was black centaurs and their bodies were zebras. No. I was like, no, no. don't do that. No, no, it's not okay. So anyway, we know of the centaur, and it's been an enduring figure for many millennia, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and so about the ancient Greek centaur, there's a debate over where this creature originated. So one of the um, stories is that the centaur was born of the union between uh, the king of the Lapiths, whose name was uh, Ixion, probably pronouncing that wrong, and Nephile, who was a cloud nymph. So Zeus... I would like to be a cloud nymph. I was just just going to say the same thing. (laughs) So Zeus, you tricky old bastard. He's always (laughs) just fucking with people. So Zeus... Invited King Ixion to um, have dinner at Mount Olympus um, just because Ixion was having a bad time. Zeus felt bad for him and said, come to Mount Olympus and we'll have a banquet and it'll be so fun. And he came and Ixion was immediately overtaken by Hera's beauty. And um, Zeus was enraged that Ixion was so disrespectful to show such overt lust for his wife which is really ironic because Zeus was literally banging Winner everybody all the time but whatever <laughs> so Zeus got mad and decided he was going to test Ixion's integrity and so Ixion passes out drunk as you do he wakes up next to the naked body of Hera and begins to have sex with her however it is not Hera. It is a cloud nymph named Nephile that Zeus created in the image of Hera. Ixion failed the test, right? And um, (laughs) Zeus was so mad that he actually cursed Ixion to live in eternity bound to a flaming wheel that would just be spinning around in the heavens, which I don't understand why you would want that in the heavens, but whatever. And so of this union between... Just to to keep things exciting. You know, he's just up there spinning around. (laughs) Um, So of this union comes uh, the centaurs. So that's one story. Another story, the one that I kind of like better is that what ended up happening was that of this union was actually a child was born who was named Centaurus instead of Ixion and Nephile having sex and making the centaurs they had sex and made Centaurus one person who was a hunchback he was deformed he was um just real wretched unhappy person (laughs) he was sort of um like a hermit he felt like he didn't belong anywhere and as we have said, the ancient Greek society was really concerned with like beauty. And so if you looked not um, the way that they thought that you should look, you were kind of like exiled. And so he lived on Mount um, Pelion. And so the story goes that Centaurus was actually the father of all the centaurs because he was mating with the Magnesian mares on Mount Pelion. Whoa. 
you know what? Um, to each their own. <laughs> <laughs> That's some of the leading theories of where the centaurs came from. And so... Theories um, like that actually like happened. Like well, it occurred. <laughs> okay, Corey. <laughs> All right. We're talking about monsters. Let's not split hairs. No, I, no, I kind of love it. Like, like to make it scientific. Like, this this is actually how, sure, why not? how it there's, happened. There's another story that one time Zeus was just so pissed that Aphrodite kept... Um, <laughs> Um, rejecting him that he spilled his seed on the land <laughs> seed in oh. quotation marks Zeus and was actually the worst and i know and so many of the greek gods were the worst so i'm gonna talk about athena mm-hmm. a little later mm-hmm. i got a fucking bone to pick with that girl they were fucked up the greek gods. they were bad and they were mean and so anyway uh, <laughs> zeus was gross and um, <laughs> of this disgusting sort of event the centaurs were born so anyway the centaurs go on to play a really important part in um one of the biggest myths in ancient greece which was the battle of the lapiths and the centaurs so the lapiths they were real they were like real mm-hmm. um Asian peoples yeah. that were a tribe and so the story goes that the lapiths the king of the lapiths who was king uh Pirithos Mm. was going to marry Hippodamia and at their wedding the centaurs just show up and start mucking everything up and decide that they want to abduct not just Hippodamia but also um, the Lapith women and so side note King um, Pirithos is actually the son of Ixion and so he is actually at battle with his like cousins essentially right. is what the centaurs are. And so it's this like strange sort of like battle amongst battle amongst kin. And so um, the leading interpretation of this battle is that um, it serves as a metaphor between the conflict, um, the conflict between the lower appetites represented by the centaurs who are, um, depicted as being like dangerous, they're sexual, they you know have the bodies of horses and man, and they're you know, we don't need to get into that, <laughs> but um, they're <laughs> they represent lust and unbridled sexuality and danger. Dude, and... we were just, so like, I'm TAing a class about fairy tales this quarter, mm-hmm. which is dope. And today in class, we were just talking about how in, like, fairy tales and myth, like, this notion of, like, composite creatures, like, beast, beast-like humans, a lot of times is interpreted as your animal-like nature in a sexual capacity. Dude, yeah. Beauty and the Beast just came out. Exactly. And that oh. is a nasty story. <laughs> For real. Into it. Right. That's, that's the thing. Like, like, I mean, to get down to it, he's a fucking beast. He's a like, beast. For a reason, you know, it's it's like meant a water buffalo. Yeah, <laughs> can I just say that I liked Beast better before he turned into the prince, like in the old movie. <laughs> I don't judge you for that. I just <laughs> I, I don't do know. That. It's just well, he was. Me. I I like animals better than people, so yeah. that kind of makes he sense. He had his He's charm. Like a big dog. Yeah, like I just like pet him. Be like, yeah. oh, oh, he was so fluffy. Like imagine how much fur was yeah. on that neck. That scene where they like. Make them all pretty after they give them oh, a bath. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that scene, he's like trying to be grumpy, but yeah, he's so that, cute. That scene in the real life version is pretty funny. I gotta it's, watch it. The real the the new movie's good. I enjoyed it. It was okay. it's fun.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's fun. But yeah, like, (laughs) back to the centaurs. This battle between the lower appetites, which we are already establishing as sex and lust, and, um, and civilized behavior. And so we already know that the ancient Greek society was built upon these codes of conduct that were sacred. If you didn't act that way, then it was not only frowned down upon, but you were dangerous. You were dangerous to the cohesiveness of the polis, which is the basically the city-state in the Greek world, and and their civilization was built around that. So if you didn't act civilized, you were dangerous. And so these stories are a really good way to push the value of civilized behavior. And so in the case of the Battle of the Lapids and the Centaurs, the the hero, there's always a hero. Um in this case, uh, the hero the, the hero Theseus shows up and makes it so that the Lapids win and everyone's happy and the Centaurs are banished and um and so like the battle between the gods and the giants, it's another one of those stories where, you know, good civilized Greek behavior outweighs the the monstrous out of controlness of of the other of the monster. Yeah. So typifying this like eternal struggle between civilization and barbarism. And what's interesting about the centaurs too is that this the story of the centaur actually comes from an interesting combination of like myth, but also reality. So when the ancient Aegean people, so the Minoans um, and the other Aegean islands, Cycladic peoples, um, when they encountered nomads on horseback. So one of the, the horse riding culture comes from like Kazakhstan. And so when these people made their way into what is the Mediterranean area, they were thought to be um, half man, half horse, because they had never seen someone on a horse. And In were, the most logical explanation. Right. They were like, oh my god. Well, you know, it's crazy, and the thing that sort of um, supports this theory is that when Spanish soldiers came into the Aztec world, the Aztec have record describing half men half horses that came on boats from far away and so it must have just blown people's mind like they had just never seen anyone riding a horse and it looked like because of the way a rider looks on a horse especially from a distance yeah like it really looked like these were man horses (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah um so the lapis and the centaurs and also the Lapids were one of the first tribes to like really begin um, domesticating horses and establishing this like horse riding culture. So if you know anyone who's a horsey person, you know that it is, it is a culture. 
horsey person. Horsey. Well, you know. <laughs> that just makes me think of, like, someone who is horsey, not someone who likes horses. <laughs> like, a horse-like person. Well, okay. Someone who likes horses. No, I like yours better. So. Um, is there a word for that? Like, a horse enthusiast? I feel like there's gotta be... Equestrian? There it is. Yeah. Equeptomania. Whoa. <laughs> Equeptomania. I know a few of those. <laughs> The centaur appears in different <laughs> mythologies. There's an Indian centaur. Um, that's interesting. There's a centaur. Centaurs appear in China. There's female centaurs that are barely talked about. We saw them in Fantasia, though. That was cool. Fantasia! <laughs> um, Honestly, Fantasia I forever, that. man. It's been a while. The chimera. That's another one. <laughs> that's that's a monster. <laughs> so the chimera is one of those like just straight up hybrid animals. It's to the point where it's actually a word in like molecular science. Really? Yeah. So chimera is like uh, c- composed of like different kinds of proteins. Or I'm gonna something. look that shit up. I right don't now. know exactly, and I'm not even gonna pretend to explain what that means because I don't know anything about molecular anything so just know that it's a science term to describe things that are composite oh no shit about molecules i know nothing about molecules i know h2o that's about it oh interesting okay so the first two definitions that come up nothing about science but there's greek mythology definition and then a thing that is hoped or wished for, but in fact is illusory or impossible to achieve. Whoa, I never a, heard of that. It's a chimera. Oh. So it's another word for like fantasy. Oh. So that's kind of fun. Well, and it is a fantasy. The The chimera is this fantastic creature. It's a fire-breathing animal. It's usually composed of the front half is a, a lion um, that breathes fire. There's a random goat head just on its back that sticks out. I found the biology definition. There's a, this is an interesting word, but like this has so yeah. many. Okay. So in biology, it's an organism containing a mixture of genetically different tissues oh. formed by processes such as fusion of early embryos, grafting, or mutation. So mutation, Crazy. like it's even in biology, it's like a monster. Okay. Um, a DNA molecule with sequences derived from two or more different organisms formed by laboratory manipulation. Also, close. also <laughs> a cartilaginous marine fish with a long tail and a erect spine before the first dorsal fin and typically a forward projection from the snout. So weird. Chimera is just, that's a loaded word. It's a, there's a lot <laughs> going on there. So, Chimera, he's got the head of a lion, there's a head of a goat on its back, and its tail, its tail end can be um, a snake, so the tail can end in a snake's head, or it can have the back part of a dragon. Ooh. Ah. So. Like the back part, like the butt of a dragon? Like the butt of a dragon. Whoa. The tail, too, or just the butt? I think that it could be either or. Hmm. I don't know. So, um... The chimera is just one of many offspring that is said to have been born from the union of Typhon, who was Gaia's last monstrous son, her tremendous son. This is my tremendous. <laughs> this is my tremendous son, whom I'm, I'm afraid of. <laughs> Gaius, oh tremendous son. <laughs> I don't know 
why I said that. <laughs> and, uh, and Echidna, Echidna, who is a she-viper, described as half-woman, half-snake. So she and Typhon got together and made many monsters, um, <laughs> such as Set. Cerberus, the three-headed dog from Hell. Oh yeah, mm. he's also in Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Yeah. And he's also, in uh, our... Hercules. Remember? Well, isn't that our um, thing that we have to use to get onto the library? Oh really? Our Kerberos yeah. password. <laughs> Close. It is like, the dog. That's that the dog that guards. Oh my god! I'm just putting this together. Mm-hmm. Oh man, the connections. It, it's <laughs> the three-headed dog that guards, mm-hmm. and it's like a oh, it's that's, our security. It's our security. Oh, no, sorry, not for the library, but for like cameras and all that. It's our security system. Mm-hmm. Clever, well done. Oh, com- because the dog people. is keeping yeah. you from. It's keeping the the fishers, <laughs> the P, the PH fishers from hacking our stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's what they're called. Because keep that's it, keep it. Cyber. Because every couple thing. weeks we have to do a cyber security <laughs> training. God. It's like every two weeks. I'm not even exaggerating. God. It's not exaggerating at all. Not at all. But that's still really clever. That is clever. That's very clever. <laughs> so Typhon and Echidna also birthed the Hydra. So the mythical creature... With many heads, and you chop off one, and two come back, and it's just a nightmare. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> I don't even know where we're going with this. The, the chimera is is oftentimes used as uh, just to describe some kind of mythical fictional animal with various parts made up from different animals. And it, as we saw, it has many meanings. Um, it can be it can be used to describe something that is composed of very disparate parts. It can be used to describe as anything that's wildly imaginative, implausible, or dazzling. Um, if you saw a chimera run, no. Um, if you see a chimera, it was usually an omen um, for disaster. In particular, volcanoes. Volcanoes? <laughs> yeah. Why is it going to be a bad omen just in terms of volcanoes? Because like, it was associated with fire. Um, for sure, but if you ever saw a comet, like, that's just a bad sign. Well, well and there's, there's also... Itself. It's like a compound. <laughs> you're not sure until you see the chimera, though. You're like, oh, no, it's bad. <laughs> Well, you know, what's funny is that the location in ancient Greece where the sort of, like, this notion of the chimera came from, it's actually this area with, like, many, like, like gas pits that, like, fire comes out of. So, like, like fire coming from the ground. I don't know. <laughs> All right? Go check it out. And- fire pits. <laughs> the fire, fire pits. pits. The fire pits of Greece. <laughs> Now it's like modern day Turkey. I don't know exactly where this is, but there are fire pits. If you're listening, you know about the fire pits. Um, let us know. Tell us if you're yeah. there. Email us arthistorybabes at gmail.com about the fire pits. <laughs> if you saw a chimera, let us know what happened. Um, um, so, anyway, the chimera is thought to have um, actually had many offspring. And one of the offspring is the fantastical riddling sphinx. And so I'm going to hand it off to Natalie before I say any other ridiculous shit. Um, fantastical offspring and tremendous sons. <laughs> 
follow that? <laughs> I know, mine was like really serious and dry. <laughs> Oh goodness! That's the next, the tremendous next Harry son. Potter book. <laughs> the tremendous Harry son. And the tremendous son. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, shit! Write that one down. We are so giggly tonight. Tremendous son. We're gonna sell. We're gonna copy him. Copyright that. Copyright. We're gonna sell that shit to J.K. Rowling. <laughs> okay, so the Sphinx. I'm going to go back a little bit from the Greek origin that Jen was talking about and talk a little bit about Egyptian Sphinx just because that's where they started. And there's entirely different connotations for Egyptian Sphinx and Greek Sphinx. So kind of interesting. They first appeared in Egypt around uh, 2600 or 2500 BC. And as you guys have probably seen time and time again, it is a lion body with a head generally a woman not always a woman it kind of goes back and forth when it is a woman a lot of times it has like breasts and whatnot and the Egyptian especially would wear a lot of like head cloths or crown um most famously is the Nemes am I saying it right Nemes crown Nemes Nemes N-E-M-E-S I know that's fine you guys know how to you know what I'm talking about that's generally what you get with a sphinx. Uh, sometimes you get wings and a serpent tail, but that just all depends. Oh, look at your little drawings. <laughs> yeah, I drew a little sphinx. Oh, <laughs> kind of weird looking, oh, but wow. and a little harpy. Um, yeah. Oh, disclaimer: I'm gonna get to harpies too. <laughs> um, yeah, and so and sometimes she'll have human hands instead of the paws, so she can hold things. Um, and there are actually other forms of sphinx, which I didn't know. So there's a ram-headed sphinx, which is called a creosphinx, and a hawk-headed sphinx, which is a hieracosphinx. And the androsphinx is what we think of the human head with the lion body. Um, there were also potential bull or horse bodies. So there's all these weird little variations, but the most famous is the female sphinx with um, a woman's head and a lion's body, which is, I believe, the one that is depicted in Greek mythology. Um, I think it is a female sphinx. Yeah, in Egypt, obviously the most famous is the, um, the giant sphinx of Giza, so the great sphinx of Giza. And while the sphinx kind of becomes this, it, it gains kind of negative connotations in that she's kind of a terror. <laughs> for the Greeks. Um, but the Egyptians saw the Sphinx as a protector. Um, the lion was considered a royal animal, like it symbolized royalty. And so they started putting up all of these Sphinx in order to guard the royal peeps, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Using real sophisticated terminology here. The royal peeps. Um, yeah. So the peeps were protected <laughs> by the Sphinx. And there was even a cult for the Sphinx, which I thought was pretty great in Egypt, and they had like a little place that they would set up between her paws, <laughs> which is just Aww. awesome. And then we kind of move on, and in the Near East, they had the Orientalizing Sphinx, which was a lot much more often feminine, and um, actually would wear a crown of flowers or vegetation, and um, would carry a cartouche, or which is like a tablet, and would occasionally have a rosette pendant. So she gets real fancy in the Near East. And this is my favorite part. 
and numerous breasts were shown. <laughs> make make what you will yeah. of that. Oh, wait, I don't I really think know. I think I've seen that. I think so. I've she seen... can have like many breasts. Yeah, I think I've okay. seen. If it wasn't the Sphinx, it was some other it was like, probably her. mythical creature with many breasts. Yeah, and so this this version, the Orientalizing Sphinx, um, as they call it, was associated with fertility a lot. So oh, okay. some of the symbolism overlapped with uh, fertility, gods, and whatnot. All right, so now, moving to Greece. Dude, here's a sphinx with many breasts. Oh, oh. Strange. I want to see it. Yeah, it looks, you, it looks Ooh, like, a, like an animal. It looks like, like a six-pack. Or it looks like, uh, I, th- I keep thinking of, like, the <laughs> she-wolf. Have you ever seen, yeah, oh, like, the yeah, she-wolf meeting yeah. yeah, yeah, Romulus yeah, and yeah, Remus yeah. with all of those really long, exaggerated teats. nipples? Yeah. All the teats. The teats. teats. Mm-hmm. I always forget okay. about the word teat. Never yeah, me forget. too. <laughs> well, now I'm I want to write that in my notes. Please hold, guys. Just the teats. <laughs> so, back to Greece. Yes. Yeah, so the, <coughs> the oldest found representation of the Sphinx in Greece um, is dated from about 1750 BC. I mean, it was only found in 1972, which is pretty interesting. Whoa. Yeah, pretty recent. Found on Crete. And this one is, uh, it's male and reclined, no wings, has a beard, and they think that it was meant to um, resemble the king at the time. So it was actually modeled after a specific person, which is something that they did in Egypt too, but... Yes, so this early Greek, and then we move to the most famous Sphinx story, The Riddle of the Sphinx, which is the mythology relating to what Jen was talking about with... Cerebrus? (laughs) You guys know, we're talking about the dog. The The dog. The three-headed dog, who uh, procreates with a two-headed dog named... Like you do. So Chimera and Orthus, Orthus being a two-headed dog. Right, who is the son of... Um, Cerebrus, who's the three-headed oh, dog. Oh, okay. So three-headed dog gives birth right? to a two-headed dog. Two-headed dog does it with Chimera. If we're wrong, just go with it. We'll post this, the, the my source, so that you can blame them if we're wrong. <laughs> um, but they... Well, that's also the thing, like, with ancient Greek myths, there are so, lots there's of... There's so many contrasting stories. Exactly. Yeah, there's lots of different stories for each myth. Like, Dude, yeah, you know... So you kind of have to take every bit with, like, a grain of salt because you'll probably get con- contradicting information with, like, a later version. Yeah, dude, like, Homer says one thing, Hippocrates or whatever yeah. says something else. Like, who knows what's real? Ovid says something else. Oh, Virgil's got it. Oh, <laughs> Ovid. That <laughs> bastard. <laughs> yeah, so this Sphinx, though, that is born of Orthus and Chimera is then placed in Thebes in order to terrorize the people of Thebes for... I don't know. They did something. They upset the gods. It's not hard to do. Yeah, true. Um, so they're in the Greek city. The, the Sphinx is in the Greek city of Thebes, and it won't let anyone pass unless they answer his riddle. Um, I have the riddle, and oh, I'm going to make shit. you guys solve it. I know this riddle. Okay, then you hush. You you might do. Fine. It might be all, all eyes on Ginny. Oh, fuck. All <laughs> eyes on Ginny. Okay, so originally in the mythology, there, there was no, like, written... For a long time, there was no written riddle. Like, there wasn't one riddle, and then there appeared a riddle, and that's the one we're going with. So, it says, Which creature has one voice and yet becomes four-footed and two-footed and three-footed? I don't like that at all. <laughs> 
There's a part of the riddle that's important, though. It's um, what creature has one voice? Yeah. What is it? Four. Walks on four legs in the morning. Oh, yeah. That walks was... on two legs in the afternoon and walks on three, three legs. legs in the evening. Oh. Yeah, that's like the advanced, I think, that I like. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because that's how I was told it when I was little. Right. You're totally right. I, I don't know. <laughs> Any guesses? I'm inclined to say <clears> time <throat> because I feel like time is the answer yeah, to riddles. It's I've probably heard time. It's probably a clock. It's probably <laughs> Father Time. What is, what is time? I don't, yeah. they, I don't think they had clocks back then, dude. Mm-mm. Sundial? Sundial. <laughs> it's something abstract like that, probably. So the answer is man. Oh, god damn it. God when you're born, damn it. Crawl, yeah. And then you walk on two legs yeah, like when it. you're a, a youth. And then when you're like, old, you have, you have a cane. cane. Yeah. yeah. So it's just three. Mm-hmm. I knew that, and now mm-hmm. I remember. Clever. But, uh, okay, and then there was a lesser-known second riddle that is, people are kind of like, eh, was it really the second riddle? I don't know. I'm going to get this one. Okay. <laughs> there are two sisters. One gives birth to the other, and she gives birth to the first. Who are the two sisters? The sun and the moon. Mm-hmm. Mo- Mother nature. Oh, oh. <laughs> Explain. So, oh it, yeah, it is sun the sun and, and the moon. moon sisters, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then one gives birth. So like, no, you're right. It's, because so it's night and day. Yeah, yeah. Because, so yeah, you you win that though. You get that right. I would have never guessed Take that. Take that, yeah. you sphinxy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I was so. gonna say something like really offensive, and then I was like, no, don't. You're like thinking incest. Uh, yeah, I, was I like, feel like ah. I don't. I don't hear like the sun. Being referred to as a female giraffe. Yeah. The moon is always a female. Yeah, in like almost every mythos, but it's like night the moon and day. is female. Yeah. So it's not necessarily the moon and the sun. It's supposed to be like night and day. So I don't know if there was some personification of night and day as female. I don't know. Should be. Yeah, and if you didn't get those right, so Corey and Ginny would have been eaten by the Sphinx. Mm, That's what happens when you get it wrong. Dang it. And Oedipus, uh, he solved it. That's his lesser known triumph. But um, yeah, it's not, it's not what he's known for. Yeah, <laughs> we all remember what you're known for. All right, moving on to the next creature, the harpy. So their origin is actually from Greek mythology, so we don't have to go back any further. And um, it does have kind of a transition because it's fir- they're first known as women with wings. So pretty simple, full female body, generally considered to be like an attractive female, and then just had wings. And this is more in line with the idea that they were uh, personifications of wind. Hmm. Yeah, and they started out, yeah, they started out having two harpies, and their names were Aelo and Ossipete. Aelo means storm swift, and Ossipete means the swift wing. Storm swift. Yeah, very much like wind, storm. I feel like storm swift would be the name of like a a racing horse. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the word harpy, the etymology is uh, snatchers, and that's definitely something that they do because they were known to carry their victims away, mm. um, and depending on the story, I mean, they were called upon by the gods. Usually it was Zeus or Athena, and they would order these harpies to go pick someone up and swoop them away to whatever fate they would have, um, and... There's some overlap that I'm not quite sure on with harpies and fury. The furies, okay. So well, aren't the furies the three women? There's the old crony. There's the mother. You know more and than me. There is the like babe. 
I, mean, I know that's not like her like technical like term. Baby or like no no like like, like, like the babe. She's like oh. the babe. Um, oh, oh. So it's like these three like aspects of like femininity, I guess. And the sure. Furies. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I'm not sure. You might be right. Might I know be right. The Furies are they're heavy in um at Oedipus in. Yeah, in Oedipus's story, the Furies have a pretty big role. Right. But, um... And they are furious at him. Yeah, And that's they're, why they're making his life, like, yeah. not fun. Yeah, it's basically, they're these female deities of, of vengeance. vengeance. Yeah, yeah, sometimes referred to as the infernal goddesses. Mm-hmm. That's so dope, dude. Yeah. God. So, in the Aeneid by Virgil, the Roman poet... Um, in book three, the Trojans who are traveling, trying to, you know, Troy's fallen and they're trying to find a new home and on their journey, they get blown into the strophades, which are like these kind of rocky islands. So there's this kind of layered story because they land in the strophades because of this huge storm. Well, the, the harpies are personifications of wind so they're they can be seen as the storm that pushes them to this island well this island is where the harpies live so once they're there the trojans um find some goats and they slaughter the goats they thank the gods um they do you know they check all their boxes to have a nice feast (laughs) and they still get they get fucked um, Why though? I I don't know. I have to read the Aeneid again. I don't remember if they even give a reason. I don't know that they have to. I think the gods are sort of like that. Oh. Definitely happens in Greek mythology a lot. Yeah, yeah like it, you know what? I'm bored today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna fuck with this dude and like ruin yeah. his life. There's real. not a ton of morals to find in the <laughs> yeah. mythology. It's always just like, oh, well, life's shitty. Yeah, Which I guess is a good moral, but there's, there's never, yeah. like, some, like, deep, good yeah. message. It's always like, yo, like, Zeus might turn into a swan and bang ya. <laughs> <laughs> and that might happen. You yeah, don't know so, why. <laughs> so that's not what happens to the Trojans. <laughs> okay. um, instead, they sit down to have their feast, and um, all of a sudden, the harpies come in and start swooping up their food. And they just keep taking it away and terrorizing the men every time they try and eat. Dang it. So, like, they just can't eat. <laughs> and this Dang is something it. that the harpies kind of become <laughs> known for is this, like, thieving of food. The third harpy, Seleno. That's my best pronunciation. Seleno? Seleno. And we're going to go Seleno. 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 <laughs> so, this harpy was created by Virgil in the Aeneid, um, which is interesting because she also becomes the main harpy, like, the leader. And she gives an omen to the Trojans saying, the Trojans will be so hungry, they will they will eat their tables before they reach the end of their journey. Whoa. Yeah, which actually ends up coming true later in the story, which is kind of a trip. When they get to Rome, they, like, actually end up eating these, like, wooden platters. And they're like, oh, fuck, the harpies. Damn it. Ah, I'd eat some wood if I was starving, probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Some soft wood. You could probably make it taste <laughs> Only okay. if it was a soft wood. Perhaps like an oak. That was the harpies in terms of, you know, Greek mythology. And just to throw in really quickly, because I cannot pass up an opportunity to talk about my boy Dante Alighieri. In the Inferno, uh, in Canto 13, Seventh Ring of Hell, just to situate everyone. Um, <laughs> it's where the suicide committers... I think I just made that up. They, this is their <laughs> ring of hell. And um, here lie the harpies. And I'm just going to read you guys this. It's quick. 
It says, here the repellent harpies make their nests, who drove the Trojans from the Strophades with dire announcements of the coming woe. They have broad wings with razor-sharp talons and a human neck and face, clawed feet and swollen feathered bellies. They claw their lamentations in e the eerie trees. So just to like show how the harpies start out is truly just women with wings who would like pick people up and carry them away, you know, literal snatchers. And then they become more and more bird over time. So then they get bird feet, bird legs, and it just keeps <laughs> crawling up like birdiness. More bird. <laughs> more bird. Until it's just a woman's neck and head. And they always kind of have this description as being very like, almost like rancid, like smelly and decaying. Oh. So like their bellies can be decaying and stuff. Which kind of aids to the fact that they would like steal food or make food inedible. And it's just, it gets, it gets nasty. Um, but those are the harpies. And nowadays it's a kind of insulting word for women. Yeah. Which is fun. Yeah. It, like, like street prostitutes <laughs> can Call be called out. harpies. Oh my or just, like, God. <laughs> I had an ex-boyfriend. <laughs> Fuck you, Vince. Um, <laughs> Vince, I hope you're listening. Vince, I swear to God, I hope you're listening. I hate you so much, you asshole. Um, but this asshole had the nerve to call me a harpy. And you know why? I was just trying to get him to pay his vehicle registration on time. Like, I'm sorry that I didn't want you to get pulled over, asshole. Anyway, so apparently... He probably didn't understand the weight of that reference. Well, you know, like, calling me a... He doesn't a, know the history calling, of the harpy. Calling me a, a rancid body snatcher <laughs> was not warranted. But also the personification of wind. I have a question. So, were the harpies known to make, like, a shrill sound or something? That's where, okay, so they often, and Corey's going to get into this, but they often get confused with sirens. Oh. So, I don't remember if they come across sirens in Aeneid. I want to say they do, but I might be thinking of the Odyssey, because You're I know they do in the Odyssey. thinking of the Odyssey. Okay, okay. well, let's hand it over. That's why the storm in this one is significant that it's wind. It's the wind that's pushing them. That's the harpies, not sirens. No singing. Corey, go. All right. So I got, I got a couple more monsters for you. Nice. Gonna just transition from the harpies into the sirens. <laughs> First and foremost, the sirens, you've probably heard of them before. Uh, you probably read the Odyssey in high school. Like, you, you've probably, you have a, an image in your mind of the sirens. They're not mermaids, all right? You're wrong. They're not mermaids. <laughs> That's not what they are. Isn't that so weird? It is. Why is that? Okay. Why are they um, It's a weird thing, because I thought they were for the longest time, too. Yeah. Like, even, yeah, even today, it's very common for you to see people representing them, especially in relation to the Odyssey, as these mermaids. And it's like, that's not what they are. Um, and they couldn't even swim. Yeah, they can swim. They're actually very similar to harpies. They're mm. women with bird bodies <laughs> um they're they're a composite creature with the body of a bird and the head of a human in terms of ancient greek greece uh the image first appeared on bronze cauldrons circa 8th century bce but there is a egyptian source for sirens, which is the bobbird, the Egyptian bobbird. Bobbird. Yes. I love that. I've never heard of that. Um, so we'll start with, okay, so the Egyptian bobbird um, was not musical the way the sirens were, but very physically similar. It was this human bird composite creature. Um, some of the older ones were actually depicted as men. They had the, the beards, but then it kind of 
transformed into more females with with bird bodies. But it actually comes from um, the story of, of Isis, the ancient Egyptian story of Isis. Um, and she's often depicted as a female bird composite figure, which is kind of interesting because, I mean, she has this whole crazy story where she, like... She had a crazy life. She had a crazy life. But she has this whole story where she, like basically like brings her husband back from the dead and like makes babies Piece together with all them. Of his yeah parts. she pieces together oh, yeah. so he's been like decapitated and she pieces together his body parts and True then love. Yeah, right <laughs> um, I would do that for my man and then and then she gets impregnated by him and then gives birth oh. to like a kind of child of the dead in a weird way <laughs> so Isis the bobbird already has kind of associations with death in an interesting way, and that transfers over into ancient Greek sirens. They also have associations with death. In ancient Greece, they're not strictly gendered, but they, very similar, they end up being typically female. It went through various, the, the image of the siren went through various transformations, kind of culminating in this softened, softened image that de depicted a monstrous creature, but she was still beautiful. Like she had a beautiful face. But the siren that you probably know of in the Odyssey, they were said to lure like sailors to their deaths with their beautiful song, right? And for some reason over time, we started depicting them as these mermaids. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, they didn't swim. They, they were, they were, they were airborne creatures. Seagulls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were, they were seagulls, exactly. <laughs> um, that did take over the, the ship that Odysseus was on. So yeah, that's they're most widely known for their appearance in Homer's The Odyssey. They're they're oh pretty much always described as dangerous like seducers of men. They seduce men with their their beautiful seductive song. And um Odysseus was a big deal because he he strapped himself to the bow of his <laughs> of of his boat and he listened to the song. And he was like, oh! <laughs> Fucking I know, right? So he listened to the song, and he was not seduced by their song. And so, I don't know, that makes him a big deal what for some... What a strong that man. Means, and he yeah. has a big old penis. Yeah. <laughs> for real. Um, yeah. And then, and then... <laughs> Also throughout ancient Greek culture, sirens, they, they kind of show up everywhere. Um, but they, they were used a lot in um, uh, mourning ceremony, like funerary type situations. So, and, and from, like, I don't know a lot about this, but people um, have suggested that this kind of relates back to Isis in ancient Egypt because she was so connected with Whoa. death. So there, I don't know, there's a weird, like I said, I'm not Interesting. a, yeah, I'm not a, a, an expert on sirens by any means, but there's a weird thread of the sirens and death and obviously seduction. Mm -hmm. I don't know, probably most important thing, not mermaids, so remember and not that. Harpies. Not harpies, harpies either. Harpies were snatchers, sirens were singers. Exactly. So seducers. Did the, the sirens never snatch anybody? No, they seduce them. They yeah. bring them to them. Exactly. And then what did they do with them? I think do they them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know because if they ate like... them or not. Maybe. I don't remember. What happened in the Odyssey? Did they eat them? I, I think, think they, they just kind of like dragged them away and yeah. probably sucked out their life energy. Yeah, and probably. Yeah. You know. And then they turn into vampires. As you <laughs> So yeah, sirens. Interesting monster. Now, now for 
for the the star of the show. Yes. I'm really excited about this one. Okay. So I did my, for the class that Jen was talking about earlier, I wrote my paper on, she mentioned it briefly, on the monstrous feminine, which is a theory you all need to look up immediately. It's um, so good. It's so good. And we'll do an episode because it's so good. It's so femme. It's so, and it, it basically, quick rundown, it's just applying all of these these ideas of monster theory, this notion of like monsters represent otherness, but like applying them in a feminist context. Yeah. So it's like, Females represent otherness. Yep. And so it's basically like the fucking patriarchy turning females into monsters. Right, because we get periods. And yeah, we like... we like Monstrous! And we like push <laughs> humans out of our vaginas. Honestly, though, like, that is fucking scary. It is scary. It is. It's not but not scary. Yeah, it's definitely scary. Um, But yeah, so Monstrous Feminine, look it up. We'll probably put a couple of sources on our page just for from our research because it's so interesting. But I think one of our favorite monsters all around, we just love her to bits, Medusa. Medusa. Love you. Medusa. 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 I love your hair. <laughs> She's also known as the Gorgon. So that might be used interchangeably Oh, but here. she was one of the Gorgons. She was one of the Gorgons. Um, okay, so Medusa was one of the Gorgons. Uh, there were three Gorgons. It was Medusa and her two sisters, Thano and Uriel. Interesting thing about Medusa, she was the only mortal, like, human. The other two were pure monstrous. Right. Like, they were monsters, mm-hmm. but somehow they were all sisters. That I goes don't know. back to her, like... Maybe half-sisters? I relate to that <laughs> I think I got a lot of half-siblings. <laughs> Same. And I think it's got something to do with her, like, genetic line. I mean, I don't know. Well, here's the story. And, and man, is it fucked up. Okay. So, um, Medusa. I'm kind of going off of, of Ovid's version, but as we mentioned before with Greek mythology, it kind of just, like, bounces all over the place. I understand that some of this isn't super logical, but you just got to kind of go with it. Um, okay, so Medusa is a beautiful mortal woman, and she's a follower of Athena. She has dedicated herself to Athena, and therefore she's expected to guard her virginity because Athena <sighs> is the ultimate goddess, and she's a virgin she's goddess. She's the virgin they goddess, They were all about right. those virgins. Yeah, for real. Mm-hmm. There's there's a, a handful of goddesses. A couple of them were virgins. It was Athena and Artemis are virgins. Right. right. Um, and Athena was like the queen goddess, and she was also a virgin. Surprise, surprise. Um, and so followers, people who had, had given themselves to Athena, were expected to guard their virginity. This is a very important thing. Um, you guard that. You guard it because it's important with for, your life. For some reason, <laughs> I still don't understand. But um, penises are monsters. <laughs> <laughs> so she's this beautiful mortal woman, and she's given her life to Athena. And um, as a result, Poseidon. Uh, God of the sea. God he's, damn it. He's a problematic Oh, he's a fucker. dick. Um, Poseidon basically considers her a conquest. Because he's a fucking piece of shit. And um, ultimately, he ends up raping Medusa in Athena's temple. In Athena's temple. Double bad. And that happens in other examples of Greek mythology, too. It's fucked up. It's, the whole thing is messed up, right? So this is basically seen as an unforgivable desecration of Athena's divinity. Like, it's just totally unforgivable. Despite the fact that Medusa had nothing to do with it, 
This is all on Poseidon. She was she was raped. Yeah, she was the 100% victim here. I mean, we could start drawing parallels to contemporary culture, but you guys get the point. Um, so Medusa's totally the victim. Was too tight. Yeah, right. Yeah, the toga was too tight. Yeah. yeah, exactly. She wouldn't have been praying like that if she wasn't asking for it. Where was her peplos? <laughs> that is the shawl that covers the breasts. <laughs> was it loose? <laughs> or tight? Tell me. <laughs> so basically, um, Athena is just irate about all this because Athena is a hardcore tool of the patriarchy, like, hands down. She sucks. Like, everyone, like, there's this common narrative like, oh, how could they be so patriarchal because they had this woman goddess. Mm. She is a 100% tool of the patriarchy. She's born out of Zeus's head, yeah. by the way. <laughs> so she didn't have a mom. She yeah. was born yeah. via and male she did, will. She did, every everything she did was to help the patriarchy. It was to further yeah. their agenda. So fuck Athena. But, um, but anyways, oh, yeah. but so Medusa is just considered just awful for this unforgivable act that she had nothing to do with. And as a result, she's transformed by Athena, who's supposed to be her girl. Like, that's supposed to be... She's dedicated her life. Yeah, that's supposed to be her girl. And so what Athena does is she turns around, she turns Medusa into a hideous monster. I am sorry, but that is some horrible girl-on-girl crime right there. I'm not sorry. I'm like... Because that's... That's messed up. That's sad. It makes me sad. Sad. It makes me super sad. Um, And so she transforms Medusa into this hideous Gorgon, and she forces her into isolation. Um, Basically because, as you might know, anyone who looks at Medusa is then turned into stone. Mm. So it's basically, you know, no one... She can't interact with anyone. It's like bullying. Yeah. Right? It's just the most... Isolation. It's the most horrible. It's like solitary confinement to the max. It's just the most horrible form of isolation. So Gorgon is just this monster and then then somehow her two sisters that are already Gorgons come into play. I don't quite understand it, but whatever. Right. Um, so she at least has her sisters. I don't know. Um, but ultimately, her ultimate demise is at the hands of Perseus. Perseus is, is a youth. He's mm-hmm. a youth and yep. Polydectes sends him to retrieve the Gorgon's head so he could basically have Perseus's mother, Danae, to himself. So he's just trying to get rid of Perseus, and he's like, go get me the Gorgon's So Perseus head. is kind of just like a little tool. He's a little tool, but he's also the hero in this story. He's Heroes a- in Greek mythology are often also major dingle douches. Yeah, for real. Dingle For douches. real. So, um, so Polydectes is just like, get out my face. Uh, Perseus and so he sends him to get the Gorgon's head and Perseus you know trying to be this tough guy is like okay um the gods warn Perseus to only look at Gorgon through a mirror um so he uses his shield as a mirror and while Medusa is sleeping like how cowardice you gotta be yeah so Medusa's sleeping Perseus comes in with his shield He's just looking in his sh- he's looking at the reflection and then he fucking cuts off her head while she's sleeping. It's like the most cowardly like approach to killing a monster. Yeah. But anyways, so he decapitates Medusa while she's sleeping with his sickle-shaped sword. And this is kind of cool. At, he decapitates Medusa and then her two children, uh Chrysor and Pegasus are born from Medusa's neck. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And these are I was like how she have sex though. 
Poseidon. Right. So they're Poseidon's kids as well. Ew. And they spring from her neck, which yes. has really interesting connections to the theory of Monstrous Feminine because Monstrous Feminine is largely related to Monstrous Reproduction. Uh-huh. And so it's literally Monstrous Reproduction. It's yeah. like reproduction from this monster's decapitated neck. Pegasus um, was dope. Yeah, Pegasus is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, interestingly, it's also been said that the hand of Perseus was guided by Athena in slaying the Gorgon. <sighs> so it's like, like you already fucked your girl over. You're going to send some little, like, chump to, like, <laughs> take her out. Are you serious? Like, how messed up is all of this? Um, She's not a nice lady. Interestingly, depictions of Athena in ancient Greek art, um, the Aegeus of Athena uh, is the face of the Gorgon. Uh, the term Aegeus is actually really, like, weird. Like, no one really knows what Aegeus means, but it's been adopted to mean shield. What does it mean? No one knows. <laughs> <laughs> so the shield of Athena has the head of the Gorgon on it because of all of this. And somehow that story's heroic. I don't understand, but it is in some way. Um, that's upsets. That's upsets. That's, that's upsets. That's upsets. That's upsets me. It upsets me too. It makes me really mad. Um, in terms of just depictions of the Gorgon in ancient Greek art, there are three stages. There's the archaic Gorgon, the middle Gorgon, and then the late beautiful Gorgon. Um, mm. The archaic Gorgon... It's just, like, kind of an interesting image. We'll have some up on our images, but, like, she has, like, this gaping mouth and this protruding tongue, very broad nose that's kind of hooked inward. She has a furrowed brow. She often has boar's tusks. Yeah, she looks kind of rough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just... It's, yeah, it's kind of cool, though. But, yeah, it's just, like, this weird face. Um, That's the archaic Gorgon. And then over time, she kind of... But at this point in time, in the archaic Gorgon, in the archaic period of Greek art, she didn't have snakes for hair. And that's the thing most people associate with with Medusa, the snakes for hair. Archaic Gorgon didn't have the snakes for hair. That shows up in the middle to late beautiful Gorgon is where the snakes come into play. She starts to have snakes for hair. And then the late beautiful Gorgon, much like the development of the sirens over time, what happens is that she has the snakes for hair, but she's depicted as beautiful again. She has this beautiful face. Yep. Um, if she has a body, a lot of times it's beautiful. She just has snakes for hair. And she yep. still has these monstrous powers, but all of a sudden she's kind of beautiful and seductive. Mm-hmm. So it's like this kind of back and forth, you know, between she's beautiful, she's hideous, she's yep. beautiful. And so you have this interesting interplay with both the sirens and the the Gorgon with kind of seduction as danger um, because you're depicting these very beautiful creatures, but they're also, they can also turn you to stone or they can lure you to your death, which, yeah, fits in perfectly with this notion of otherness and, and what's dangerous because yep. obviously the patriarchy of ancient Greek wanted when, like female sexuality to be dangerous. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, it's all just super fascinating Hopefully in the future we'll do an episode just totally on depictions of Medusa over time because there's yeah. some good yes. ones. I love Caravaggio's Medusa. Oh, I'm it's looking so at it right now. Good. It is and so Bernini's Busters. Oh, Homegirls. No, there's there's great Medusas throughout the entire history of art. So hopefully we'll do that in the future. Makes but, a great Halloween costume. Oh yeah. Ideas oh, for future. Oh, oh, can we pose baby Ginny as Medusa? I'll allow it. <laughs> 
Yes. Yeah. Sweet baby Jenny dressed as Medusa. Two years in a row. So cute. It's so cute. It was terrifying. <laughs> it's so cute. We're going to put that up so on our images. So many people were turned to stone. Yeah. Yeah, you need to check out our many image. Many children died. Just, I'm kidding. That was dark. <laughs> so cute, that. Y'all need to make sure you check out our images on arthistorybabes.com because we are going to have the best picture of Jenny as Medusa. Um, but also, just to kind of wrap it up into contemporary culture, I was just watching yesterday Louis C.K.'s new stand-up. 2017. It's on Netflix. It's hilarious. I really liked it. But he tells the story of Achilles and it's so funny and I like I doubt he'll ever hear this but if you do Louis C.K. please do like an audio book of Greek myths because That'd it be would dope. It'd be like the best thing ever. Um, so yeah check that out. Also, if you have, like, we we hit on a lot of interesting stuff about monsters. So if you have any insight whatsoever or thoughts or comments, please email us at arthistorybabes.com. Uh, do you guys have any last thoughts before we go into listener mail? Uh, man, I just want to say that monsters are so dope. Yeah. And that's really all I really think about. Monsters, monsters. are dope. They're Ancient great. Greek men sucked. I think we're kind of at an interesting place where we're starting to humanize the monsters and rethink how we think about heroes. Yep. Dude, for real. But also, quick disclaimer, um, no hate to modern day Greek men. Oh, no, not at all. This is like, yeah, we're going back to a completely different. This is ancient. Ancient. We're talking millennia ago. Yeah, we're so, talking about our our research into yeah. ancient. We just Greece. don't want like a bunch of like angry Greek men, like <laughs> super pissed off. Like, hey, yeah, uh, happy Greek men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have I have no hate on contemporary Greek culture whatsoever. If you're a Greek man and you have an opinion about this topic, <laughs> let us know at arthistorybabes at gmail dot com. Say hi. Yeah, or just. Also you, up. also, you don't have to be a Greek man. If you just have an opinion on this topic, please let But us I'm know. interested in the Greek man perspective. I mean, just saying. So if there's For any sure. Greek man listening, uh, you know, hit us up. Um, so listener mail. We got, we got a handful of stuff. Okay, so here's just a quick one from uh, Georgia, who is a LACMA docent. Oof, um, cool. Do, 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 do. She is very much into alchemy and hermetism like you. The book you reference for the hermetic part is so complicated. May I suggest the books of Francis Yates, in particular Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition. It's long, but it goes over the entire history of the hermetic tradition, sometimes touching art history too. Botticelli, Leonardo, Durer are just a few hermetic artists, apparently. Thank you for choosing this topic. So this is in reference to our alchemy and art episode that we did. That um, was a complex book that I <laughs> And it's a complex topic. Like, yeah. her, her hermeticism, like, we're... I still don't. Yeah, yeah we're not <laughs> pretending to really know what we're talking about there, but it's super fascinating. So thank you for that book rec- recommendation. If it's something you're interested in, um, yeah, check that out. So thank you very much. Thank it- you, G- Georgia? Georgia. You have a very pretty name. It's beautiful. Um, okay, and then we got another one from Katie. Uh, I emailed you once before, but since then my boyfriend and I have been to the Ringling, Mu- the Ringling, a museum close to our area. And while we were there, we both spotted an interesting painting we were both pretty puzzled about. The painting in question is titled Still Life with Dead Game by Franz Cinders. In the painting, there's a table set up for a feast, except laid out across it is what you would expect from the title, Dead Game. 
One of the animals on display is even cut open with its entrails showing. When we got home, I immediately started doing some research on this painting, but realized there are actually lots of paintings like this one. Do you know the significance of dead game around a table? My boyfriend has a theory, and so do I, but I can't find any backing on either of our theories. I would love to hear your take if you have one. Thanks, Katie. Vanitas, memento mori. Vanitas. Yeah, it's just like a really common sort of, I mean, what, what would you call it? Like a trope? In still life painting, at least and during a certain period, during yeah. like that northern Renaissance, yeah. Yeah, like that Dutch. Flemish tradition, yeah, um, I, you know, something about this moment in time where you know the fruit is ever aging, the rabbit is going to be spoiled if you don't hurry well, up and cook it soon it's like something about the moment that it's, that being in the moment and also like you know memento mori so yeah, this yeah, sort of yeah. transitoriness of life the game because they're i mean similar to being around a dead table like or dead game being around a table there are um a lot of paintings that are dead game in like a, a market setting um like a meat market type setting of the same style and it's it's you know, it's that notion of, yeah, it's the notion of the momentary, but it's also this notion that's fine, found in Vanitas symbolism that is kind of like a treat yourself type of a thing. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like meat was, you, you know. You have to have money. Yeah, you have, to have, you have to have money to buy meat. And it was like, it was this notion of, of dead game is like, that's that's going to be a meal. And that's right. going to be, that's going to be a, a rich, delicious meal that you're going to get to eat. But right. it's also fleeting. Also, in a practical sense, these artists were very much working within a market themselves yeah. of trying to get hired. And so as an artist of this tradition, if, you know, painting something like Dead Game, it's kind of hard to paint. Painting fur, painting feathers. Sure. And so a lot of the time, these images were also made to display, like, look how good I am. Yeah, like, commission definitely. me. This is just one of many things I can do. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it kind of reminds me of a painting by Chardin. It's called The Ray because it does have those animal elements, which aren't always super um, present in Vanitas painting. Um, you get a lot of plants and fruit. Um, and this one does have fruit, but there are some living aspects. So there's a lot of dead game that's kind of just like laid out or sprawled out. Or hanging, but there are elements that look like they're only going to be that way for that exact moment. Yeah. So there's like a bird taking off from like a really precariously placed strainer. That's a strainer, right? Yeah. yeah. That yeah, like truly, a... you know, the second that that bird's feet leave, that that thing's going to move. And then it could set like a whole ricochet of events. And the reason that I was thinking of the ray is if you look under the table, there's a cat, like a living cat. And in the ray, there's a cat that's doing, it basically has the same role as the bird in this one. The cat is like jumping. So you know the cat oh, is about to send yeah. everything on the table just a flying. And that's kind of the, the feeling that you get looking closely at this is that in this moment, everything's kind of laid out in a perfect way. But in a second, it's all going to turn into chaos. And there's a little boy stealing from... I don't know if he would be the shopkeeper or just a visitor, but there's a little burglar reaching <laughs> into his pocket. He's cute. So there's just all these little aspects of kind of like, it's it's definitely momentary and it's fleeting. And there's like these 
like pieces of almost perfection and then there's just chaos looming yeah definitely and and with a lot I mean Dutch still life in general it was all kind of yeah tied back to to the market and what like what people were buying and what people were trading and selling and so game was just a large part of that um so there's a lot of things going on I would honestly be really interested to hear you and like your theories and your boyfriend's theories though yeah. because what's really fun for us is while we've been you know trained to look at these things for a long time it's really fun when people come at us with new theories it makes it new and interesting if you have the time and want to write us back with what you guys were thinking that would be great but that's that's our input on well, and especially now that I look a little more I don't know that the one I was just talking about is the one that you saw so if you do write back send us a picture of the one that you saw yeah. because yeah. he looks like see what she saw it looks like there were a few it's a it's a big motif it's a big theme so so any input uh we definitely appreciate and hopefully we gave you some some more ideas to chew on no pun intended ah. dead game last message um this comes from quinlan which is like such a cute name that is a sweet name i oh. love that name okay I felt compelled to contact you so I could let you know how much I love your podcast. This year I graduated and moved from Canada to London to teach. I don't know that many people here. I don't know that many people here, so I've been wandering aimlessly through London by myself. I discovered your podcast when I was looking for a way to continue learning. I miss going to lectures. Satisfy my love of art history and entertain me while I'm by myself. Your podcast is wonderful and you make art history so much fun. I took intro courses in art history and had an eccentric professor, so unlike what other listeners have said, I always thought art history was fun. Thank you for keeping it fun. I've been binge listening to the podcast now when I walk around and it feels like I'm walking around with some friends. There have been some times when I've started laughing laughing and I've got weird looks on the tube your podcast also has made me revisit the art museums here and appreciate the art even more than I did before I keep thinking I have a favorite episode but then I listen to another one and I fall in love with that episode too one of my favorites was bad boys of baroque because you talked about my boy Caravaggio and helped me fall even more in love with that badass I also loved the color theory episode when you talked about Vincent Van Gogh when you guys were crying over how he never got to see his painting sell I also started crying while sitting outside of the Globe Theater here in London. That's so cute. Um, I think I remember you showing your disdain for Doctor Who. Do any of us have a disdain for Doctor Who? I don't Who? like that show at all. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I've never seen it. Yeah, but I've never seen it except I've seen this episode she's talking about here. She says, you need to watch the episode where they take Van Gogh to the future. And an art an art museum to show him how much people love his work. I cried like a baby. I've seen it too, and I also cried like Did a baby. Did you and Maisie show me? Yeah. yeah. And it was very emotional. Yeah, I'm not a doc. I've never watched any other episode, but it's like this beautiful scene where they take Van Gogh to a museum to see people like get excited about his work. It's like stupid. I'm and getting I know. It's like, it's really emotional. Um, and Anyways, uh, keep on doing what you're doing, Quinlan. P.S. When are you going? Are you going on tour to London? I would totally be down for hitting up the museums with you. Um, so the thing is, we're not going to London, but we are going to Europe. Yeah, we are going to Europe mid <laughs> mid June. So 
Um, so we're going here mid June. Um, it's still kind of up in the air, but we are no. We're going to Paris. Berlin. We're for sure going to Paris. <laughs> yeah, we just booked the Airbnb, <laughs> so we're going to Paris. Okay, so we're going to Paris, Berlin, and Prague. Honestly, if and like if any of you are interested in doing some kind of meetup, we would be open to planning something like that. But we'd have to get some feedback. So if a handful of you could meet up with us in any of those cities or want to meet up with us in any of those cities, email us and we can plan something from there. Um, we'll so, do yeah. our best. Yeah, well, yeah. but we could we could make something happen. Those are the places we're going to be. If you guys want to come hang out with us, we'd love that. So, so email us if that's something you'd be interested we'll in. Party. We'll party. We'll <laughs> party. We'll go look at some art. It'll be really fun. Paris, Berlin, and Prague, mid-June. You can also find us on Twitter at Art History Babes, Instagram at Art History Babes Podcast, Facebook, like us on Facebook. Uh, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Art History Babes. We've gotten a couple more donations since our last episode. We really appreciate it. We would love to update our sound equipment. Like that's, um, that's another thing on our, our iTunes reviews. The only kind of like, backlash we've gotten is people are like it'd be really great if you know your voices were all at the same level and I'm like yeah that would be really that would great. be really great <laughs> we agree. I would love that <laughs> that would be really great but we need to have money to update our equipment to make that happen so if you have a couple of dollars you want to throw our way we sincerely sincerely appreciate it you can also help us out by just going to our website and clicking around a little bit that helps out um, but not too much but <laughs> yeah don't do it in a suspicious manner because we'll get We'll get banned. Easy to move along. Yeah, <laughs> yeah move along. along. Yeah, for real. Um, also, write us reviews on iTunes. Those are so great. I love all the new yeah. reviews we've been getting. Thank you so much. Uh, you're all super awesome, and this is super fun, and we have a super good time making it and doing it. It's awesome. And we super love you. We love you. Super. It's super. Um, thank you for listening to our episode on Ancient Greek Monsters, Faber J. Eggs, coming at you right before Easter. Yeah. Have a good, have a, have a good time. Have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. From That's the next, the next Harry Potter book. The tremendous son. And the tremendous son. Oh my god. Oh shit. Write that one down.